Welcome to Lawyer by Day. I apologise about my voice. Yes, I have a bit of a cold, but this definitely hasn't stopped me getting out this week to some fantastic events for Law Week. Law Week is running from Monday the 14th of May through to Sunday the 20th of May. Check out the Victoria Law Foundation website for the program and more information about what's going on near you. You won't regret it. Go take a look. www.victorialawfoundation.org.au For this episode of Lawyer by Day, I spoke to the creator and host of the Law Foundation's podcast, and we spoke in particular about the episode just released for Law Week. It's titled Law in the Digital Era, What Goes Into Creating an Investigative Podcast? I'm betting that you, an avid podcast listener, have heard of and listened to Serial, the podcast from the creators of This American Life. And I also bet that many of you will have carefully followed the very compelling Australian investigative podcasts released over the past few years, like Trace, Phoebe's Fall and Bowerville. So in a fascinating conversation for the Law Foundation podcast, my guest spoke with Rachel Brown, the host and creator of Trace, Richard Baker, a co-presenter of Phoebe's Fall, and Damien Carrick, of course, from ABC Radio National's The Law Report. They discuss the intricacies and the hurdles in producing an investigative podcast. It's fascinating, and like everything else relating to Law Week, it's available on the Victoria Law Foundation website. Again, www.victorialawfoundation.org.au. Now, my guest isn't only the creator and host of a new podcast... She has over 15 years of experience as a radio broadcaster with the ABC. She was a Victorian Law Reform Commissioner, an interviewer for the University of Melbourne's Up Close podcast, a seasoned communications professional, and she's also the chair of the board for the Victorian Foundation for Survivors of Torture, also known as Foundation House. But my guest also has the job of helping Victorians understand the law and understand how to use it to improve their lives. Hi, my name's Lynn Holtay and I'm the Executive Director of the Victoria Law Foundation. Lynn told me that making the Law Foundation podcast and using her broadcasting experience in this way feels to her like she's taken Law Week and bent it to her will. Well, from my perspective, if the future of Law Week and the Law Foundation involves more podcasting and more storytelling, I'm definitely on board. When Lynn first came into the studio for this interview, I had to stop myself pretty quickly from doing my normal, pretty boring spiel about how a microphone works, how far to sit away from it. She had done this thousands of times more than I had. Not that I ever got taught anything, so you just did it. So when you started out, people didn't kind of give you the 101 of what what you would say, where to start and what to do? No, the only only tip you got was don't pop. Don't pop. Yeah. If you've got lots of peas in a sentence, be careful not to pop. Do you remember what the what the kind of first interview or first discussion you had with someone on air was? Oh well, it, that was in public broadcasting, in in community broadcasting, right? And it was a music program. Music program. And it was called Guildstream. <laughs> it was sponsored by the University Guild. Right. And I had it was a two hour program, and I got half a program, so I did one hour, and uh, I. St- I think I still have a tape of it somewhere. Do you ever listen to it? Do you no, ever get it out? I, I, I'm not sure where it is, and it's probably so degraded now. But it'd be great to to 
listened back to the music that I was playing. I do remember two singles I bought for that program, and one was It's Raining Men by <laughs> um, The Weather Girls. I played that, which was very provocative at the time because it was a very hipster sort of triple R type station. So to be playing straight up disco was um, was a bit of a, a challenge to to the listenership. But I wanted to play it because um, a I loved it, and b it was at that time still a, um, very much the domain of of the gay clubs. It wasn't mainstream, so. So you made that a conscious decision of one of the first kind of songs you'd play or one of the kind of first impacts you'd have on radio, which is really interesting. <laughs> I don't know, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is. It's, it's, it sounds like you wanted to make a mark first yeah. up. Yeah, I wanted to wake them up and say, here I am and this is something a bit different you may not have heard on this station before. So, so I read online that when you were writing about kind of over 15 years of experience as a broadcaster and interviewer, you use the phrase, everyone has a story and ideas are avenues. Can you tell me what that means? Hmm. Well, everyone does have a story. And if tram rides were longer, I would quiz people on public transport. Um, and I've learned the most extraordinary things from talking to people on, on trams and trains. So I, I earnestly believe that everyone has a yarn to tell. It's just a question of, of finding the right way in and trusting, you know, the relationship of trust between between the two people that they don't think you're weird <laughs> for asking them questions. Um, and that way in explores all sorts of context and experience and perspectives, which, you know, enlighten you as to how people feel about their time and space on the planet. You know, that's a really compelling uh, opportunity to to explore different views of the world. And that's, I think, I, I suppose my bottom line um, that I've become a bit more sort of pat about as my daughter gets to a certain age, the two things I value most in life are compassion and curiosity. And that's the curiosity bit. Is compassion and curiosity the way into a conversation on a train? Absolutely. Tram? Is, yep. is that how you, how you kick off yes, a conversation cause... on the 96? <laughs> Usually when... Um, when you're apologising for something or you are um, recognising somebody's experience in some way or just saying, I love that pair of shoes, <laughs> which I do quite frequently. Do people respond, like, I feel like, and I've talked about this on the podcast with another guest before, that our experience on Melbourne public transport can be such an inwardly focused individual experience and we very much ignore people probably for courtesy and and for for reasons that are well established in people's minds do people respond well when you say i love your shoes or you find that kind of connection with them do do people in melbourne do that yes mostly uh i mean i think people have become even more hermetically sealed you put headphones in and that's it people can't touch you and I certainly used to do that too. I remember I lived in London in the early 80s and I'd put my Walkman on and put my headphones on and delight in the fact that I was in this bubble and no one could get at me. Um, so there are times and places when that's in, you know completely appropriate or, or a good mechanism to get through your day. But there are other times when I'm a bit more expansive and, and yeah, people respond really well and they're very grateful for for some sort of you know random act of of 
appreciation. And I always try and thank the train driver too, but I don't always spot them <laughs> for having done what they do. I think the people that make our city function have extraordinary stories to tell about the you know the the life and times of of making this city tick. And um, I love cleaners and train drivers and tram drivers and uh, drivers of any kind, actually, <laughs> who get me from A to B. I thank them daily. Um, and street sweepers and uh, gardeners. It, it makes sense then that you're a, a broadcaster and a, uh, your job was to talk to people every day and and to communicate. And of course, that's a big part of what you do in one of your current roles, which is Executive Director of the Victorian yes. Law Foundation. I'm wondering if you can tell me, firstly, for our listeners, what the Law Foundation is, um, what maybe a bit about what Law Week is as well. Sure. Well, the Law Foundation is now 50 years old, so it's a very well-established and much-loved organisation, which for most of that time has been involved with what's called community legal education. So providing resources and materials and opportunities for Victorians to understand the law better. So trying to put the law into very um, accessible terms and into appropriate formats. So we have a, a very extensive resource on our Everyday Law website. We produce brochures and uh, materials on common legal problems that, you know, despite their sort of low grade on the legal hierarchy, can still create enormous grief for people. So problems with your neighbours or barking dogs or traffic fines, that kind of stuff, which don't... Um, you know, make uh, make news in, in legal circles, but can really make people's lives miserable. And in fact, one of my very early experiences in the law, in the practice of law, was as a, um, you know, an observer in a drop-in centre attached to the university. And I remember sitting with the solicitor for, I don't know, three or four cases, one after the other, where people's lives were being made hell through fencing disputes or noisy dogs or, you know, some issue in their domestic environment. And we couldn't really do anything to help them. And yet their lives were hell. This was their home. This was intended to be their sanctuary. And it was being, you know, destroyed by this tense relationship. And at that point, I thought, you know, this, this, the gap between law and justice is really significant. And so, you know, many, many years later, decades later, I'm now involved with an agency that does what it can to, to try and help people help themselves in that respect. Um, we also give grants to, to um, legal organisations and community sector organisations to produce materials and to help particular groups of people with legal issues. We gave a very large grant recently to St Kilda Law Legal Service for um, a new uh, LGBTIQ legal service. Um, we've given money to um, outer suburban and regional areas to produce materials and to outreach to their communities. So that's a big part of what we do as well. And we throw big events. So um, we uh, introduced a new community forum last year, which we did on voluntary assisted dying, which went very well. We do what's called the Laura Ration, and the queen, of course, of of <laughs> the um, of the events list is Law Week, which is coming up on the fourteenth of May, fourteenth to the twenty first of May, and it is the crowning 
you know, glory of our, our annual program of events. And it's really a platform for agencies and organisations across the state and in all different parts of uh, the legal experience to produce uh, events and opportunities for people to engage with them. So we, you know, get all sorts of registrations. Uh, people taking walking tours of the legal precinct, um, people having opportunities to get free legal advice in the libraries in regional Victoria or in the in the shopping centres, um, people uh, hearing debates around issues for you know the experience of going through the magistrates court. Uh, there's a, an amazing one this year which is about the history of dress in the court. So wigs and gowns and where all that came from and where it's all going and the fact that when I started out in the law, I wasn't allowed to wear a skirt, uh, wasn't allowed to wear trousers to court, had to wear a skirt, all that kind of stuff and how things have changed. So it's it's really an umbrella um, opportunity for people to present legal events and um, learning experiences under the the auspices of Law Week, and we provide the website and all the the contact details and and the you know the interchange. I suppose is is our role. It sounds very much like the Law Foundation's remit in that communication role might have something in common with um, the role you've had previously as a law reform commissioner. In talking about the law and communicating the law, including to the public, do we need to be good storytellers? Oh. Well, everything is stories. And I, I must admit, I'm hugely uh, pleased that we are beginning to talk about telling stories without regarding that as trite. Just a few years ago, if you were to say, and I used to do this as a, you know, for a living, I'd walk into executives and tell them that they needed to tell stories. And you can imagine the faces on the suits around the, the boardroom table, they just sort of wince and think, oh, you know, we don't do stories. That's very primary school and kinder. Um, and so I think the communication sector sort of built in all sorts of language around uh, messaging and narrative and uh, sort of grandiose words for telling stories. Now I think we are a bit more um, uh, accepting of that phrase and it is exactly what we do. I used to ask people when I did media training with them to remember the last story that really stayed with them on media, whether it was television or radio or whatever else. And I'd let them sit there for you know a couple of minutes to think up what was the last story that really stayed with them. And I'm talking, you know, lawyers and accountants and economists and the like. Um, then I'd ask them. And they'd say, oh, well, you know, it was uh, the rescue of, of those two kids in the surf or it was uh, the tragic death of a mother um, last weekend or, you know, whatever. It was always the powerful stories of humanity. And then I'd say, so GDP came out yesterday. That's not stuck with you, even though you're all economists and that's, you know, your stock in trade? No. That's not what stays with people. So you need to give the human experience, whether or not it's GDP, a human face, and people recall that it stays powerful. And the, the Law Reform Commission, you know, deals with, a, you know, apparently fairly dry content. We, we're, um, you know, I say we, I, I'm past tense now, but the commission is given... Um, instructions to review certain aspects of the law 
but when you dig into that, and the one that, that comes to mind is, is the big work we did around guardianship, the, the humanity in all of that brings the law to life, also really demonstrates the gaps and what you need to do in order to amend the, the, uh, the law to meet the human experience better. Did you receive submissions in the way you're talking about? Do mm. you, those stories perhaps still stay with you? They, ha- they impact the process Absolutely. because they have to. They do indeed. So um, extraordinarily powerful stories. Um, and this was true at the Ombudsman's office as well, where I also worked with Deborah Glass, the Victorian Ombudsman. The submissions we received around disability or around um, uh, prisoners, uh, around the experience of um, people working their way through council processes, they're really extraordinarily honest and compelling and you know in the end they they drive change which is a really extraordinary outcome so this is staying on compelling stories you have created a podcast um, (laughs) which will be launched it's a single episode podcast which is being launched during law week can you tell me what it is and, and kind of what it's about? Mark, I'm embarrassed to call it a podcast because <laughs> unlike yours, um, I'm, I'm unfortunately not making a, a regular commitment to this. So yours is a real podcast. Mine is, is, is an episode. I um, don't think we should draw that distinction. <laughs> what, what we're doing is um, having a look at investigative Podcasts. So it struck me in conversation at the office a few weeks ago or months ago, we were talking about things like Serial and um, the ABC's uh, series called Trace, which was made by Rachel Brown, and all the other investigative podcasts that have come along. You might call them true crime, although that phrase is um, is uh, is stewed by by many who are involved in making them. And I thought, what does it take to make? something like that. What are the legal challenges that present themselves as you're working through a current case in some instances, or in Rachel's case, a very cold case? So finding people, finding the archival evidence, getting through the legal maze uh, about what you can or can't talk about, all that kind of stuff. And I thought that's, that's something maybe people would be interested in hearing about. And then also what it teaches us about the legal process. So it does the experience of listening to Rachel Brown's five episodes on on the, the cold case about Maria James or um, to Richard Baker's uh, um, piece called Phoebe's Fall, which was six episodes. Does that give you an insight into the forensic examination of, of evidence, the police investigative process, then the legal issues that arise? And do you come out of that with a better understanding of how the law works? So we thought we'd put it together. So I invited both Richard and Rachel to join us um, for a conversation together with Damien Carrick from the Law Report on Radio National. And I think we could have talked all day, but um, but that will go up on the first day of, of Law Week and I hope will be of, of some interest and insight to people. I think it definitely will. And I think there'll be definitely the makings of many more episodes if you've got the time <laughs> and the resources um, to put them on. In talking to those people who are so involved in storytelling um, and incredibly compelling podcasts and um, radio, was there anything that they said or that you learnt that really surprised you about what they do? One, I mean, it's all very, very interesting. And 
I think the challenge of working to the wire every time, and Rachel in particular wanted a very interactive um, experience with her audience. So she was asking the audience for assistance, asking people for leads, asking people whether or not they remembered these things or had heard about it from relatives or friends. So she was very open to to an interaction with her audience, which of course meant that between episodes she was having to sift through, you know, good leads, bad leads, all sorts of, of impact from, from the content that she'd already put up, as well as trying to progress her story in a way that, that made sense for the for the narrative. So that was a real challenge. But a comment that Damien made, which I found really interesting, some years ago he had followed um, a family through a court experience. Uh, They had lost their son in a terrible incident and uh, the man responsible was charged with with murder and eventually convicted of manslaughter. And it was a particularly gruelling experience, as you can imagine, for the family. And Damien was a fly on the wall through their experience and he made no pretensions that this was intended to be balanced in any way. It was absolutely the experience of the victim's family. And what he said was that when he's interviewed perpetrators in the past, so pedophiles and murderers and fraudsters and, you know, the really nasty end of of the criminal world, uh, he's had, you know, quite positive reaction. But when he interviews victims the reaction can be quite negative. It's as if there's this expectation on the part of of the listening um, audience that people get what they deserve through the system and there's little compassion for the experience of the victim and I find that really fascinating and it was certainly really surprising to him as well. So that was an interesting insight. I wonder sometimes, and a bit through my study, I've wondered if people's reactions of that type are about their own understanding of their own safety, why crime does not occur around them, why they aren't the victim of a particular crime. And it's powerful to listen to a story and wonder, could that have been me? And how, why is it not me? (laughs) And, you know, I mean, so often when we watch people on telly and they've just had a terrible experience and they say, I never thought it could happen to me. You know, you hear it over and over and over again because I think we all do live with this sort of force field or bubble around us thinking I'm, you know, not, I'm not the sort of person to whom these things happen. So I don't need to. You know, really think about it too much and I don't need to extend great compassion because that involves some emotional energy that I'm better off using somewhere else. So I think you're right. I think people just do think it won't happen to them. But the fact is that we are a hair's breadth away from any of that stuff all the time. Um, I had a, a serious incident not so long ago, smashed my ankle, ended up in hospital. I never thought that would happen to me. I never thought I'd end up with plates and pins in my leg and having to do rehab and all that for years. I mean, that's a very minor example in the scheme of things. But I suddenly find myself catapulted into old age because now I've got arthritis and you know, all these other things. I never thought that would happen to me. It doesn't sound like a minor thing. I think you, you're downplaying that, that experience a <laughs> well, little it, bit. Well, it's given me enormous compassion for people standing up on trams and trains. So let, let me put it that way. Certainly. 
thinking about Rachel's experience and the creating trace, the podcast series, following leads, some good, some bad, between episodes as that interactive process plays out. Compare that to the process, the similar type of process that the, this American Life team would follow in creating the serial podcast. What do we need to do in Australia to better support people who want to make these resource-intensive storytelling projects when it may just be one or two people following these leads between episodes as opposed to this massive, well-established public radio um, offshoot? Well, I mean, Serial, as as you'd know if you've listened to it, comes with a, a huge team of people behind it, which is you know always remarkable to me when I listen to American podcasts in particular and hear the credits at the end and you think, gee, they're, they're so well-resourced. On the other hand, they have no such thing as, as the ABC or a public broadcaster of that ilk or SBS. So, you know, it's um, it, it cuts both ways. Uh, I think... Life has become an awful lot easier for what's called citizen journalism. Um, And I think we are in the midst of um, a very fascinating phase of shakedown around what is news, what is important in, uh, um, in our immediate environment to consume by way of commentary and opinion and um, determining fact from fiction and all the rest of it. And, you know, I mean, we could go on for hours about the the various examples of that around the planet politically and socially. But I think it's a really interesting moment that, that we're in. And, I mean, you do this with, with a kit that you probably didn't spend that much money on no. in the scheme of things, and you put out an extremely professional-sounding product. So... You know, it's it's doable. It's about persistence and curiosity. Once again, it's about you know getting to the heart of the story, and not being creepy about it. <laughs> That's yeah, you know, and that is always on your mind. You're like, don't be creepy about it. And I always thought it was funny when people say like, why why did you start the podcast? And I say, well. It's weird to invite people to talk to you in your house or even sometimes even in a studio for an hour um, without a, a real reason, except that I'm really interested yes. in you know what this person does and what you do. Put a kind of a bit of a, a framework around it, a process around it of producing something, a way of, you know, I guess being able to tell a story. And it, it, it's legitimate. It's legitimate. But that just tells us something about what strange kind of <laughs> social beings we are, yes. you know, that we, we're we happy to, you know, be involved in a storytelling project. Yes. Or an, but, you know, part of why I started was to talk to people as well. Yes. And that was the enormous privilege of working for the ABC for as long as I did. Was You know, I got this incredible opportunity to ask people anything. And you ring them up and say, you know, from the ABC, will you talk to me tomorrow on the program? And they'd say yes, and you think, really? <laughs> That's Great, fantastic. why? <laughs> exactly. So I'm thrilled that just as, as I sort of came out of broadcasting, there were other opportunities to engage in in this sort of uh, exchange, which didn't require uh, being a um, an employee of a major broadcaster in order to legitimise your, your curiosity. Thinking about your time again as a broadcaster, and particularly on the law report, how was it different telling or engaging in stories that focused on the law as opposed to other broadcasting that you did? So that might have had a much broader 
remit and focus to then be on a show focused on the law and legal issues. Oh, it was fascinating and it was an extraordinary time. So um, I was making the law report you know, around the time of the capital C conservative high court comments from Tim Fisher. Um, land rights was, was really uh, significant. Uh, so there were very powerful constitutional stories that I was really keen to try and explain and explore for a broader audience. Um, and we did lots of, of you know, other issues around uh, particular you know, peculiarities of legal process and jury systems and adversarial and inquisitorial and you know, all that kind of normal um, territory for for a, um, an exploration of the law. But for me, it was very different. I was used to making daily programs and suddenly I was making a weekly program. So the research involved and the, the intensity of, of the um, experience was, was much greater. And I loved it, you know, an opportunity to spend a whole week researching something up and prepping, you know, stories three or four weeks down the track was just extraordinary. It was such a, uh, a gift. It was amazing. And then I went back into daily programming after that. So, you know, horses for courses. But yes, it was, it was a beautiful experience. Did it create a new layer of pressure with the longer form to really build something that you were thought had impact? Yes. Because I guess the 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 run of the daily programming is one thing and you get through it, yep. I imagine, in some ways. And then on the law report, you were producing something. It had to be a gem. It had to be highly polished uh, and you sort of gave it to the world and said, there you are, and held your breath and hoped <laughs> that it came out okay. Because, as you say, the daily program, the the run of that is, you know, pretty fast and furious. And you had another day the next day to get up and make it better. So if you thought, oh, I didn't do that interview so well, you had another opportunity the next day to get it right and to correct the the mistakes or the, the issues in your own performance. With the law report, I would get to the end of the program and think, oh, you know, that wasn't as good as it could have been. And then I had to wait another whole week <laughs> before I could improve on it. And um, I did find that frustrating. If there are lawyers listening to this or anyone who's keen on communicating something about the law, are there tips you can give them about storytelling, how to hook an audience and draw them into a narrative that you want to share to make a point or to to share something important? Well, I think as we've discussed, um, curiosity is key. So you need to be invested in it. And with that comes, and, you know, it's a phrase that's that's become very, you know, uh, worn, but you really need to listen. The best interviews are those where people are actively listening. I hate that phrase, but, you know, it's true because it's more than just letting it wash over your ears. It's a real engagement with why is this person saying this now in this way? You know, what drives everything around their comment? Um, so I think active listening is is the bottom line. That's the number one thing I would suggest to anybody. And then you need to follow your questions. So, I mean, we all see it on telly as well with political interviews, for example, where it's clear that the interviewer has got a list of questions they need to get through and they're not going to divert in any way. They're going to get through their list. So no matter what the talent says, the prime minister or the minister for whatever or, you know, 
an ACTU president or whatever, they're going to ask the next question. And so much gets lost. So I think trust your, your instincts. If you hear something, follow it, go with it. Um, that way you will get something that no one else will get because we hear things differently. So I think listen very carefully, follow your, your um, interviewee's line and trust your gut because the other great cliche in, in media and interviewing is that the vast majority of, of communication is nonverbal. It's tone, it's body position, it's all sorts of other dynamics. And that affects you in different ways. So if you're getting a sense of something in an interview, go with it, even if it sounds trite and a bit silly. There is seriously no such thing as a dumb question. I think one of the best bits of advice I've I'd had since starting this podcast was that you have to follow your curiosity because if you're curious about it... Everyone else is. Probably a number of other people will be too. And if they're not... It's still more interesting that the, the presenter or the host or the barrister is following, maybe not the barrister, I don't know, that's different maybe, but they're following the line of questioning that yes. prompts their, that, you know, that their intuition tells them they should follow. And it seems like so much, there is so much in common with a barrister cross-examining a witness and what you're talking about. It's so easy to miss really important facts that aren't, you know, well, they may not be facts that you are going to get from that witness, but they come out and they can be ignored. But the challenge is that listening is can be really difficult. Like interviewing in this context, for example, you can't help but think about the next question and what it yes. might be. So giving... It is a balance and it's a skill, you know. Um, I know I need to get from A to B in this conversation and I need to land it here and we need to talk about you know, this person's last football game or their book or, you know, whatever it is that is the context for the conversation. So, yeah, there's a dual track running in your mind at all times about how you bring it to a, a, an appropriate conclusion. But, you know, in the in the interim, because you might get to that conclusion through a very different route to the one you're imagining. In terms of, of um, the barrister's experience, I mean, clearly that's a very uh, laser uh sharp experience for all parties concerned. <laughs> but the story and the, you know, okay, call me really silly. Um, I watched Legally Blonde again Why is last that weekend. silly? I don't understand the, the comment. <laughs> so let me explain. There's a beautiful moment in Legally Blonde in the courtroom with the, the, um, uh, the star of the show who's suddenly thrown into um, uh, duty as, as the cross-examiner and she starts to quiz um, her witness about getting a perm. And only her own beauty experience will deliver the outcome that she gets, which resolves the case, which you know gets her client off and, and happy endings in the film in, in ways that only um, Hollywood musicals can deliver. But you know, it's that stuff. It's the it's the blend of your life experience together with whatever it is that that the um, that the person is presenting to you that makes for a great conversation. What's it like blending your life experience as a broadcaster of many years and your role with the Law Foundation now to make this podcast? <laughs> what what's it like to make this? podcast and put it out to the world during Law Week? Oh, it's, it's, uh, I must admit, I feel a bit, um, 
a bit sheepish because it is a bit like, okay, I've taken Law Week and bent it to my will because, um, you know, I just love getting people around microphones and talking to them. So I found an opportunity to do that. Um, and so I hope very much that it's of interest to people, but it was a blast to, to have the opportunity to do it. So, you know, if, if I can apply my background in some useful way to helping people understand the process, then, then that's that's a, a great addition. Together with, a, you know, a staff full of people who do this every day, month in, month out, and, and to an exceptionally high standard. So, you know, I'm just doing a little thing on the side, really, compared to, you know, the rest of the program and the commitment of my team. Well, for a legal community in Australia are highly engaged with the podcast format. I think you're on to something very important and powerful. So I'm very excited to listen to it (laughs) and I'm looking forward to hearing it during Law Week. Me too. I need to edit it. We have actually recorded it, but now I need to to go into the edit um, process, which will be a challenge because you get uh, four broadcasters together and <laughs> they can talk under wet cement. So that'll be my um, my task over the next few days. But, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how it comes up. Do you like sitting down to do editing I and do. kind of the more manual process-driven task of it? Yeah, love it. Um, I've always been very um, woe-to-go involved with the whole radio process. I've always been very keen on uh, the production Element so developing program shape and who we talk to and for how long and on what and that sort of building of a the shape of a program and the edit you know so the the post fact um, process of of ensuring that you know, the balance is right you've got the right um, grabs in there and content and that the narrative is is told as best possible so yeah I, I'd like all of it. You're the chair of the board of the Victorian Foundation for the Survivors of Torture. So I have two two foundations, two two boards. Two foundations, (laughs) two boards, easily managed, I'm sure, easily um, balanced within a week and a month in the year. I'm wondering if you can tell me just a little bit about Foundation House and, and what it does and what the key kind of challenge and mission is for Foundation House at this time. So we should probably explain that the Victorian Foundation for Survivors of Torture is also known as Foundation House. Um, it was started uh, 30 years ago um, as a holistic response to the refugee experience of so many that were arriving in Melbourne at the time. So it was put together by an extraordinarily prescient bunch of lawyers, doctors, um, public policy-minded people who were involved in the community sector who saw that the separate systems weren't responding to refugees' experience particularly well and certainly those who had uh, survived torture and trauma experience. And right back then, it was people out of Latin America that we were talking about, people out of Cambodia and uh, and Vietnam. And it's fascinating over the, those 30 years how the communities of, of our clients have moved. So we started with a staff member of one who is now the uh, CEO and has been for a very long time, Paris Aristotle. He was, uh, he was in initially for a six-month stint to, um, to set this thing up. 30 years later, we now have a staff of over 200 We've got uh, five offices in suburban Melbourne and we look after, I don't know, between five and 6,000 clients a year in various different contexts. So 
Some is one-on-one counselling, some is family counselling, some is work in schools or work in groups with particular communities of, of people. So there's a huge diversity of, of manifestations of how we, how we support that community. But it really is about, um, well, there's a phrase we used uh, around some of our publications a few years ago called Rebuilding Shattered Lives. So if you can ex- imagine the most challenging human circumstance where people have been through the worst possible experiences and have arrived in a new place with a new opportunity, but bring all that grief uh, and challenge with them, how then do you help them settle, uh, address the demons in their lives and rebuild their shattered lives? When I first went to see Paris um, to talk about whether or not I would join the board, so that's a long time ago now, I remember looking at the annual report on the way, or before I got there, I think, and there was a line in there for dental services. And so I had this conversation with Paris, and at the end of it I said, so why does the foundation spend this amount of money on dentists for clients? Aren't you in, you know, you're in um, social work and psychology. That's, this is not your space. And he said, well... A lot of people get tortured through their mouths. Um, it's a very common tactic. Teeth get removed. People get uh, electrocuted through gums. Uh, and also, if you spend a long time in a, a refugee camp and your your uh, nutrition is woeful, then over a period of years, you lose your teeth, you lose your capacity to eat anything useful. Um And I must admit, bringing it back to the experience on public transport, I now look at people on trams and trains who have bad teeth and think, what have you been through? What's the story that sits behind that condition? So it is about trying to support people in the most compassionate and and effective way to treat Australia as, as their home and as their sanctuary. To sound, I don't want to sound too cynical in asking this, but why have we as a nation kind of failed in the communications challenge of people understanding and hearing these stories in a way that overpowers um, the other narrative of deterrence and the idea of actually maybe some form of suffering as serving a goal of, of kind of preventing people from coming to Australia? Why have we... Hardened our hearts. And why have we found it challenging to hear or share the stories in a way that have the impact that at least I would like them to have, which is when I hear your story, even through Paris talking about that person's experience or many people's experience, why does that not have the impact that influences who we vote for and the policies that we put out into the world as an Australian public? Well, there's a question that <laughs> we could spend a long time unpacking. But, um, I mean, I don't think it's um, it's uh, un- unrehearsed territory around, you know, the political impact of, of various uh, decisions that governments of all persuasions have made uh, in order to remove the, the asylum seeker cohort in particular from public view. Um, so you know we we could talk for a long time about 
about the implications of that. To be fair, though, I think also when people have experienced very profound torture and trauma, they don't necessarily want to tell their stories. Uh, they want to come here and move on. That's the part of the deal that, that Australia is here to deliver. So, and I don't want to overplay this because there are certainly a lot, a lot of people who have been extraordinarily generous with their stories. But at Foundation House, we're very careful about telling the stories of clients, um, both for their recovery process and so as not to relitigate uh, their experience of trauma, but also to uh, not to make it, for want of a, a, a more elegant term, you know, refugee porn, yeah. but also together with all of that, a lot of them come from areas, and certainly now, where the threat to their family and friends in their countries of origin is still very real. And the prospect of them telling stories in the Australian media and that having a reverberation in their countries um, of origin is significant and they don't want to create any kind of risk that, uh, that might rebound on their families and that for that you can completely understand. So it is difficult and people say, you know, can't you just tell more stories and people will understand and the compassion will grow and suddenly we will turn into a, you know, a much more open and friendly nation. Um, there are constraints around that. So I think it comes back to political leadership and that's perhaps where we have seen the biggest failure. If there's a lawyer out there listening to this or anyone, any of our listeners, <laughs> of course, and they have a story that they're keen to tell and they're not quite sure how, what should they do? Like, where, where do they start? Like, what, what advice would you give them about sharing their story? Hmm. Well, I think you've got to write it. I mean, that's for me always a good process, especially if, if perhaps you know, interviewing or having a conversation isn't necessarily your your strength or your interest. I'm concerned that we are going to lose, through the advent of electronic communication, a vast amount of archival material and that we will lose the, the stories and the, the, the bits of paper which knit together our understanding of, of our lives and our history. I'm at the moment going through my parents' house and finding their letters and their bank books and their, you know, my reports from school from when I was seven and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I really am concerned, I think, being confronted with that, that through email and um, electronic commerce, we won't have a real understanding of what that looks like. So even if you do nothing more than write it down and give it to someone else to read, even if um, it, it, well, even if it ends up in the age or on your um, website that you decide to create to tell this story, you know, whatever. I think the opportunities to to share are so much greater now than they ever were. I mean, post it on Facebook and people will love it. So write it down, keep it, um, print it out and keep it too together with Facebook because goodness knows what's going to happen to that platform in future. Lynn, thank you very much for Pleasure. being on Lawyer by Day. Lawyer by Day is made by me, Mark Tyndall. I hope you all enjoy Law Week. Tweet at me what you're doing out there at Lawyer by Day Pod. And as always, I look forward to chatting with you next time.